Well, those are some good factors right there because home ownership is possible. Um, and said now, we're going into the to the to the to the flow of things right now because the part we had just before lunch was dealing with the money. Okay, and so the, what's the next step after the class? What is the next step after the class? Meet the money people. Home ownership is possible. That's the lesson at today's home buyer education workshop hosted by the NAACP and the topic of the latest Urban Edge podcast. Held in a church across the street from the Houston NAACP branch headquarters, the workshop runs through the home buying process from finding a realtor to inspection and closing. There's about 20 or so people here for the all-day gathering. In the background, the sounds of choir practice hum through the walls. Each person there is interested in buying a home, some for the first time, and want help navigating the process in Houston. That's where realtor Andrea Cooksey comes in. With decades of experience in the field, she works with the NID Housing Counseling Agency to lead workshops like today's. But the most important thing, guys, because of the information and education you've received today, is to get pre-approved, okay? Because, like I say, I can give all of you guys a 30-minute assignment and trust and believe you will find a house that you love. The question is, will they give you the money to really move in and love? That's an easier question for some potential homebuyers than others. Part of the reason the NAACP wanted to organize a year-long campaign to get 100 new black homeowners in Houston by Christmas is because of the persistent gaps between white and black residents when it comes to owning a home across the country. And black home ownership has actually been decreasing. According to the Urban Institute, since 2001, the black home ownership rate has seen the most dramatic drop of any racial or ethnic group. So in 2016, while 71.3% of white residents owned their homes, only 41% of black residents did, down from almost 46% in 2001. The Economic Policy Institute released its own report, looking back at the last 50 years following the Civil Rights Act. And while black Americans had made gains when it came to things like educational attainment, the report concluded that with respect to home ownership, unemployment, and incarceration, America has failed to deliver any progress for African Americans over the last five decades. Historical housing discrimination has been well documented. Since its inception, the mortgage industry and federal policy have worked against black home ownership. But even with the passage of the Fair Housing Act and the Equal Credit Opportunity Act, mortgage discrimination is still a prominent, if illegal, feature of the housing market. A recent investigation from the Center for Investigative Reporting described mortgage discrimination as modern-day redlining, finding, quote, a pattern of troubling denials for people of color across the country. But shouldn't Houston be better? Build as an affordable, fast-growing, and diverse city of the future, Houston was not one of the 61 cities identified by the Center for Investigative Reporting as having substantial mortgage discrimination, but the Houston metropolitan area is not much different when it comes to the persistent gaps in home ownership. In fact, the gap almost exactly parallels the national statistics, with 71.1% of white residents owning their own home, compared to just 41.3% of black residents, according to the Urban Institute. Not as large a gap as in the Phoenix metro area or many northeast metro areas, it's still substantial and represents a barrier to wealth building. Subprime lending, I don't care what statistics say, 
subprime lending destroyed minority communities. It truly did. So if that's your experience as a first-time homebuyer, you're not going to go do it again. Because the American dream that they told you was yours is, has not been your experience to get. That's Belinda Everett, the organizer of the Homebuyer Education Workshop. Even with the Great Recession, an analysis of seven metro areas by the Urban Institute concluded that, well, homeownership is not the universal panacea, the financial returns on homeownership have been more beneficial than renting for most homeowners and will likely remain so if current patterns continue. Because every other major purchase you buy, the minute you purchase it, it depreciates. Everett is well aware of the statistics. She said she wants to arm potential home buyers, especially those who think it's out of reach, with another set of numbers, their assets and resources. Cooksey explains. So it's very, very important for you to know your buying power. If you know you got $200,000 to spend, you can go out there with an attitude to spend. Like I can say 40 years in the business, I can write some books on some stories. But you know, I've had some people tell me, well, I don't want to buy no house till I can get me, you know, the circle styles and I need two acres and I need, you know, they got all kinds of things. And I was like, okay, so where do you live right now? And if, you know, I live in five minutes north over there, and how much you pay in five minutes north over there? And they tell me, you know, that they've been over there at the at the at the at the five minutes north, and I pay nine hundred a month. And I said, how long have you been there? And you know, when you look at it, I say so. I'm not saying you can never have your circle staffs and two, three acres, but I am telling you to get in the game so that you can acquire the equity to get to that level, okay? Because the, the thing I know for certain, when you leave five minutes, you might not even get your deposit back, okay? The next step is getting the resources. Jason Hyman worked with the city's Housing and Community Development Department before going into real estate with Real Inc. and Third Ward. He explained that though the city of Houston once offered up to $45,000 in down payment assistance to qualified applicants thanks to federal funds, that number has almost been cut in half over the years. So my time there, when I came in, um, they were giving like up to $45,000 to people. Um, it was tied to like certain locations. Um, they've done away with that. So we were talking earlier in class, they've done away with that, they felt like they were kind of over-subsidizing homeowners. Because back in that time, the homes were still affordable. So since then they've reduced it from 45 to max 25, and kind of on a as-need basis. Um, but if you look now in the city of Houston, how it's growing, um, prices are going back up. So when you factor in income limitations and restrictions to receive this money on top of growing, increasing prices, what you get is sometimes uh, programs that don't match up with the end user, that consumer, that, or that home buyer. It's that kind of information that attracted Onamika Kipkart to the class. She recently moved back with her high school-aged daughter to Houston after living for years in Virginia. So I'm in, I'm in a situation where I would like to have my own home. I have um, I've had two homes with my spouse. 
uh, before this, but I'd like to be able to purchase on my own. I'd like to have something for my myself. Having lived all over the country and abroad, Kithgart said she never felt she personally was discriminated against, but the odds Everett recited during the class were sobering. And they're not just numbers to Everett. She's seen the system work against non-white homebuyers firsthand. She worked in financial lending for several big-name banks and saw the often inconsistent ways in which the system could work for different applicants. I, I don't care who you are, how, how you think and what you believe, your reality is brought with you to the workplace. And I've seen where you can take someone's credit who may, you know, they may have the same circumstance, the same credit profile, if they've got a hiccup and their letter of explanation says this and the same thing and it's different because that underwriter or that person, because it's not, even though the technology's there and they've got all these automated decisions, I would venture to say that 98% of underwriting is still done by a person. And so what becomes believable, you know, when I was underwriting loans back in the 80s and 90s, you know, it was like we were always told underwriting is uh, art, not a science. And that still holds true because if you think it's an art and it's up to you and your judgment, then the variables don't really matter. After eight years living on the East Coast, Jonathan Lewis is ready to buy a home in his third ward neighborhood. A Yates High School graduate, Lewis said he knew he wanted to help turn the tide of black home ownership, especially as gentrification transforms his neighborhood. Even with the daunting statistics, he isn't intimidated. Yeah. So I'm not nervous at all. Um, I, um, I, where I, how I approached this year in 2018 was I wanted to start the steps, at least go as far as I can until someone tells me no, instead of telling myself no. Um, so I've already started. Um, It'll be a new experience, not just for him, but for his immediate family. No one in my family actually owns their home, uh, my immediate family, shall I say. And so I wanted to change that narrative about how we look and where we grew up, how, who has in property in our community. Where we... And he's hoping it will leave a legacy for future generations and bring together older ones. Like, I can't cook, but if I could have my family come over and they could, that would make my day on a Sunday or a weekend and they could all come over. Like, I have this vision in my head of what I see, like bringing the family together uh, every week. So I look forward to that. The Houston NAACP will host more workshops each month as it marks its 100th anniversary this year. Up next, I talk with Harriet Jagoning, a woman whose resume is lengthy and intimidating, but who's currently working on a number of high-profile resiliency projects, including on a task force for hurricane recovery in the U.S. Virgin Islands. She sat down in my office to talk about everything from bike lanes to hurricanes and future resiliency efforts. I'm Harriet Tregoning. I'm not affiliated with any organization. I'm the former uh, head of community planning and development at the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development. I'm the former planning director for the last two mayors in Washington, D.C., a former secretary of planning for the state of Maryland, uh, and uh, at this point, uh, a free agent. Uh, and I'm writing a, I'm writing a book. So I wondered, okay, so there is a book in the works. There is a book in the works. Okay, and what's the topic of the book? So it's about mission-driven leadership, but I think it's, it's turning out to be a book uh, that I think women will be particularly interested in. Um, I'm, I'm talking a lot about uh, glass ceilings, but also this phenomenon called sticky floors, which, you know, is when uh, a person, often a woman, says, I'm not qualified for that job, I'm not ready for that job, I'm not, uh, you know, I'm sure there's a better person for that job than, than me, and, and basically, um, you know, doesn't 
uh, doesn't go for it in the way that uh, that maybe a person of a different gender might. And I'm sort of the queen of sticky floors. I was going to ask, are you speaking from personal experience? Because your rise has been just steady and nonstop, it seems well, like. Well, I've had a lot of great opportunities, but it turns out the people who wanted to hire me were ridiculously persistent because I don't think I've accepted a job uh, since 1989 that I didn't say no to first, and in some cases, no repeatedly. Um, so I, I, I would certainly not uh, recommend anybody do what I do. Um, so that's part of the reason for writing the book. So looking back over all those opportunities and all those positions that you've had, you've gone from different jurisdictions all over the country, um, different agencies. What's kind of the through line for you? So, you know, at some point in the, in the mid-90s, I basically realized that a lot of roads led to the same place, which is how do you make communities and neighborhoods stronger and better? Um, so I, I was at the Environmental Protection Agency at the time, and I realized a lot of our environmental problems were going to get worse if we didn't pay attention to how land was being used. Um, and you know that has been a, a more or less consistent thread. I, I'm, I mostly work on trying to make communities, cities better and stronger. And uh, I recognize that you can do that from a thousand different places. And uh, not that I'm, I'm, I'm to a thousand yet, but. Uh, certainly at different levels of government, there are lots and lots of policies and practices that are very much in the way of places being the great places they could be. What are some of your sort of proudest moments and also the ones that you felt you learned the most from? The district was a surprisingly interesting and easy place to work. Uh, there was no Austin, no Albany, no Sacramento. Um, and uh, when I started working there, the, the city was only a few years out of a federally mandated control board, which was like equivalent to being in bankruptcy. Um, so those were dark times for the city, and, uh, and pretty much everything that happened after that control board uh, went away um, has been positive for the city. So it's a place now that really has an appetite for trying new things, uh, a willingness to fail, which I think is really hard in government. So places that are willing to try things, willing to fail at things, I think are remarkable places and exciting places because we're never going to solve the tremendous problems that we collectively face if we aren't constantly experimenting. And so you don't think of government as a place that experiments, but it has to be. Do you recall our first bike share program? It was something called Capital Bike Share. It was awful. It was 100 bikes at 10 stations. It was run by a company that did advertising. They would normally have given us money in exchange for uh, being able to put ads at bus stations, but we insisted they pay us on bike share services. They had no idea what that even was. They weren't that good at it. They weren't really reluctant. They weren't really eager to expand it. They were very reluctant to do any more of it. And, uh, and, it, and it, wasn't, it wasn't great. It wasn't regional. Uh, it didn't extend very far, so we limped along with that system. Uh, and learned a lot about what didn't work. And so the next system was solar powered. It was huge. It was regional. It was run by a company whose business it was to do bike share. And it was phenomenally successful. But it was based on the, on the foundation of a pretty abysmal failure. So yeah, we don't talk about it, but I think we should. We should do it a lot more. And we wouldn't have had that success if we hadn't learned 
um, you know, what didn't work. So what would you say to a city like Houston that's so sprawling and is trying to go multimodal and has had this pretty successful um, sort of bus reimagining, but is still struggling with getting um, biking really? We have this approved bike plan, but not a lot of funding. Like, what's the next step? What do we do next? So, you know, a lot of what has been successful bike infrastructure in, a, in, in many communities has simply been paint uh, and, and physical barriers that could be planters or jersey barriers or other, other things that aren't necessarily expensive that can be repurposed from other parts of the city. Um, so, you know, I think it's important to get started. I will say in answer to your, your previous question about what was learned, you know, we, uh, we're all gee whiz about electronic ride hailing and, and, you know, we have dockless bikes and, you know, all kinds of bike sharing opportunities now all across the globe. A lot of it is predicated on having access to credit, which absolutely cuts out a significant part of the population. And, and bike share is great in D.C., but basically if you want to get the best price, you know, you really have to buy an annual membership, which means you have to cough up, let's say, $75, you know, all at once to pay. Uh, and for some people, that's a, a hardship, you know. So it's been very surprising to me and gratifying in some ways that we're doing an experiment now in D.C. with maybe uh, close to half a dozen different bike sh uh, dockless bike share companies, including a very nifty electric one, which is really fun to ride. Uh, but uh, but how many more people seem to be participating? Because it's there's no upfront deposit. It's a simple, you know, uh, you know, pay as you go. Typically a dollar a half hour uh, ride, and and uh, that seems to have made it a ton more accessible to 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 a lot more people. So I think that's a lesson to be learned. Um, I also think there are probably a lot of other ways to get people access to credit for the purpose of transportation services that we really need to think about in terms of enabling child care and education and workforce participation, that these are kind of essential things that people have to have. Uh, and they may not start out having these things, but then I think we need to look to institutions and government to provide them because they're, they're essential. We talked a little bit about Houston before, but I did want to come back to that. What what have you seen so far? What, what are you making of it? What, how does it strike you? As There's just that big LA Times piece on LA and Houston as kind of these different cities. Um, what, what's your experience been so far? Well, um, it is a different city than I'm used to, but I'm also really used to, to looking at a place and trying to understand what its strengths are and how to make the most of the things that, the, that are its strengths. Um, and, and one of the strengths in Houston is that, you know, you don't have to do what, you know, dozens of cities are, are grappling with right now, which is undoing a 50-year-old, a 60-year-old outdated zoning code um, that, that hampers, you know, movement into the future. So I think that's a strength in Houston that could be made more of. But, you know, Houston does have a building code that, uh, that ends up, taking on some of the things that zoning takes on in other cities and I think it's as retrograde here as it is in the worst cities that you know that uh, that you might want to look at in terms of things like parking requirements and that this is an area in particular where cities have to be paying a lot of attention because that 
disruption in personal mobility is happening right now. Definitely part of the conversation, but how can we make sure that equity is on the table, not only in, in resiliency conversations, but in smart growth conversations, and as you say, they're, they're interconnected. So how have you seen cities really successfully taking that on? So I think there are lots of places that give considerations to equity. That doesn't mean you get an equitable outcome. So I think that every place really has to dig a lot deeper to figure out why are these outcomes so disparate? What are the root causes of that disparity? And what can we do you know, to, to change the outcomes? So for a lot of places, we, we undertake policies, you know, we, we throw a lot of resources at an issue uh, without necessarily evaluating whether or not we're getting different outcomes. So I think that that experimenting that cities need to do, that willingness to fail, um, you know, we need to put our policies under more of a microscope, you know, and, and ask ourselves, are we getting the outcomes that we want to get? And, and be willing to try totally different things to get to those better outcomes. And I think, um, you know, for a lot of cities, and this is true, you know, starting with federal funding, we're funding one in four, one in five households that qualify for subsidized housing in this country. The federal money is going, you know, uh, uh, is being stretched thinner and thinner. Uh, localities are having to step up to, to make up the difference where they, where they are willing to do it. Um, you know, we have to figure out, um, you know, whether the policies that we're putting in place, inclusionary zoning, rent control, uh, housing, uh, purchase assistance, you know, many cities have a lot of these policies, but it may not be making a big difference in terms of the outcomes. I, I, I think a lot of our affordable housing strategies are survival mechanisms. They're not, they're not uh, the things that really help households thrive and and in fact you know they're not designed to do that so you know one of the big differences in uh, in households um, you know in most cities is a is a asset or wealth gap yet no one would support a government program that would build wealth on the part of any particular entity although we seem to be doing it pretty directly with uh, this recent tax change um, but in general, that's not how local governments would look at their policies. But I do think there's a role for other institutions uh, to be participating in, in correcting some of those gaps. Uh, and I think that's the kind of harder work, uh, partnering with other entities to really get at some of the root causes of these disparities that cities and institutions and foundations and even private individuals are going to have to do if we're going to see the kind of changes we aspire to. You talked a little bit about HUD, about federal government. You've transitioned. How was the transition, and, and what are you working on now? And I did read that you actually make honey, so I wondered if we could see more of that in the future, or what's on the horizon. Yeah, probably not so much of that. That was just that sort of a hobby. Um, uh, it was fun to make some cool labels, you know, but, uh, but no, I wouldn't say it's a business. Uh, the 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 great thing now is I'm I'm really just doing the things I'm very interested in. So I'm very interested in helping communities become more resilient, and I think that's a huge challenge. 
but I think that for a lot of cities, that um, the things that make them better, more livable, more equitable, uh, more convenient um, cities also make them more resilient. So, you know, I think there's a real alignment between the smart growth work I've been doing um, and, and this work on resilience. And I've got a great example from uh, my work in D.C. So one of the most uh, stunning disasters we've had recently was the Great Recession, right? So not every disaster is, uh, is a natural disaster. This was a man-made disaster, but it certainly had pretty wide-ranging effects, you know, in terms of, uh, in terms of who suffered from it. Uh, I was planning director in D.C. in 2008, and I noticed hundreds of cars dropping off the DMV rolls, uh, Department of Motor Vehicle rolls, and I thought, oh my goodness, people are fleeing the jurisdiction. Uh, that's terrible. But no, it turns out people were dialing down their transportation costs because they could. So two-car households became one-car households, one-car households became zero-car households. People were saying, if I could just reduce this major expense, I think I can weather this recession. Yes, my partner has fewer hours, or my job I'm really concerned about, but I think I can, I can weather it if I can just reduce some of my costs. And this probably won't be forever, but I can definitely do without that uh, second car in our household, at least for some number of months or a year or two. Um, it turns out many of those cars never came back on the DMV rolls, and the district had very little foreclosure or bankruptcy. So property prices dipped, but they didn't plummet. Uh, district government revenues also went down, uh, but they rebounded really quickly. And the, in what was essentially the Washington region, the same jobs and housing market, the inner ring jurisdictions fared so differently than the other places. So. Um, they, uh, the district in particular, gained, um, really, really uh, uh, leapt forward uh, through the recession, gained on its share of the region's job growth and population growth. So it went from a city that had been declining in population for five straight decades to a city growing 1,100 people a month, and that and that that growth went on for years. Uh, I think it's down to now, now like 900 people a month, but you know that's a big turnaround. It's it's up 100,000 people, um, you know, in less than 10 years, and that's um, you know that was pretty astonishing. And that was partially because the city had invested in these transportation alternatives that turned out to be a huge source of resilience. Uh, I also remember the earthquake that struck the city um, in I think 2011. And we had a bike share program. And if you were biking home from that disaster, it was a totally normal and mundane commute. It was safer than normal because it was utter gridlock on the street for cars. So cars weren't moving. You didn't have to worry about getting hit by anybody. You could just go along the bike lane or these interstitial spaces and, and just get home. But if you were trying to drive out of that, uh, out that day when everybody left work at exactly the same moment, uh, I mean, it took you hours and hours to get home. So just having those options, you know, made it just made it different and easier. And, and imagine if every person on a bike had been in a car, it would have been even worse. So those choices that, that were designed to make it more convenient for people every day actually really helped the city uh, when it had a crisis. And I think that's true for a lot of things that Houston is considering. 
Uh, but I think that's the kind of thing that, that people need to think about. What makes this a better city every day? What, what makes it, uh, you know, more vibrant every day? What makes it more equitable every day? And those, investing in those things will help it thrive through and after a disaster.